Hi, I'm Professor Alistair Duff, and this is the Polymath Podcast, where we're going to explore a whole range of ideas, books, issues. Today, I want to talk about justice, and in particular about John Rawls's classic, A Theory of Justice, published in 1971. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it is certainly regarded as canonical. You know, it's up there with Plato, Hobbes, I'm sure you've heard of these, Aristotle, Locke, John Stuart Mill. It's a modern classic. And it is actually credited with having revived the whole tradition of political philosophy, which had been announced dead, pronounced dead, in the mid-50s. Rawls just brought back the whole discussion of what is a just society, how ought we to live together, which were topics that philosophers had stopped talking about. So I want to give you a couple of quotes from Rawls, which will show you, I think, or give you a flavour of the quality of his ideas. He said that justice is the first virtue of social institutions, just as truth is of systems of thought. And he said the rights secured by justice are not subject to political bargaining or to the calculus of social interests. So I should uh, mention that I um, have a personal uh, take on this. I studied under some leading Rawlsians at London University, such as, well, critics of Rawls, such as Jerry Cohen. Um, I also actually caught Rawls live he was doing a final lecture tour in Scotland. He, he was American, based at Harvard. He did a final lecture tour, and I made the journey up from Glasgow, where I'm based, to St Andrews University and heard him speak. It was quite interesting because I expected this great exponent of justice, of fairness, to be a firebrand, eloquent firebrand. And he actually had a stammer and was very old school and you know, very much the sophisticated professor, not the, the not the activist type. But, oh, the quality of that paper that he gave and the whole quality of his thought. If you Google it, you'll find out that Rawls is still the number one figure in political philosophy and everyone defines their position against or with his. He is the foil, he's the benchmark even if you disagree with him. As Robert Nozick put it, he was a fellow uh, philosopher at Harvard, he said, you either work within Rawls's theory or you explain why not. So what was so great about Rawls? Well, his book's over 500 pages long and I'm not going to be able to expound it thoroughly, but he basically asked the question, what is justice? Now, how did he answer that question? I'm going to tell you in a second. He had a great thought experiment, and I'm going to tell you what that is now.
So Rawls is asking the great question, what is a just society? And the way he goes about answering that question is unique. He asks us to imagine what he calls the original position. Now this is a variant of an old idea of the social contract. I've mentioned Hobbes and Locke already. Basically, they said people came out of a wild state, a state of nature, in order to produce a civilised setup, a civilised society. So life, as Hobbes put it, was nasty, brutish and short in the jungle, and we needed to set up political authority, government. So there was some kind of social contract. Now with rules, this is a conceptual idea solely. It's a hypothetical. It's a great super choice, which we're meant to imagine. So he has these people, or semi-people, rational agents deliberating as to what kind of society to set up, what kind of principles to govern a new society they're going to share, but they're only self-interested. They're rational agents, economic agents, and they want to work out what society would suit them best. So this is the great experiment. Now, he has a little twist, which is I think is absolutely brilliant. He puts these agents, you and me, in this abstracted situation behind what he calls a veil of ignorance. What he means by that is they do not know who they will be in the ensuing society. So they don't know, once the veil is taken away, whether they will be, or they don't know until the veil's taken away, whether they'll be male or female, rich or poor, upper class or not, whether they will be black or white, they won't even know their talents, and they won't know their vision of the good life. They won't know whether they'll be religious or atheistic or whatever. So they have to make this decision about what principles to agree on behind this veil of ignorance in these circumstances. Now Rawls thinks, and I think he's correct, that this models our intuitions about what is fair, what is a fair choice. Because things like our natural talents and our gender, they shouldn't enter into the deliberation of what is a just society. They seem to be, as Rawls puts it, arbitrary from a moral point of view. So the original position behind the veil of ignorance is a way of modelling our intuitions, our feelings, our moral sentiments about what is justice. It's a way, in a way, a device like Bentham's ideal legislator or Adam Smith's impartial spectator. It's an attempt to achieve for thought purposes, as a thought experiment, a moral point of view, an impartial point of view. Now, they are behind a veil of ignorance, but they do know that they will want certain goods, what Rawls calls primary goods. And these are things like rights, liberties, income, wealth, and what he calls the bases, the bases of self-respect. Now, he thinks whatever your, you know, your vision of the good, your theory of the good, 
whether you are a Muslim or a Christian or an atheist, you will want these basic primary goods because they are what he calls means for developing any conception of the good life. So these rational agents have to choose behind the veil of ignorance which principles should govern the distribution of the primary goods. It's a brilliant thought experiment, highly original, and in a way it actually models the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Because although the rational agents are self-interested, they don't have empathy, they're not designing a society to be fair to others, they're designing a society where they get the most themselves, they are economic agents, in a roundabout way, because they have to take everyone's point of view, because they don't know who they will be, they don't know which social position they will occupy in society, once the veil of ignorance has been removed, they have to, in effect, do unto others as, they'd have, as you'd have them do to you. Or as Rawls put it, you have to choose a society where your enemy will allocate your place in it. So it's a brilliant, I'm sure you can see that, a brilliant way of thinking about justice and society. Now, what would they choose? What would this super choice, because it's for all time, what do you think they would choose? Well, Rawls says the one thing they won't choose is utilitarianism. And a lot of his theory of justice is geared towards dismantling utilitarianism's um, orthodox role in economics and social policy. You know, utilitarianism has dominated thinking in economics and policy for over a century. And Rawls thinks it needs to be dislodged. So people will, would not choose average utility. They wouldn't choose uh, a utility function. They would choose something else. And I'm, and I'm about to tell you what they would choose. So what does Rawls think that people in the original position will choose? They won't choose a blob of pleasure, an average well-being outcome, which is how utilitarians tend to think of justice. He says instead there will be two principles. First of all, the liberty principle. People would want to have their basic liberties secured, 
freedom of speech, freedom of association, uh, freedom of the person, the freedoms associated with democracy, such as the right to run for office and the right to vote, one person, one vote. These basic liberties are the first principle of social justice. And for rules, they cannot be negotiated. They can't be traded off against anything else. Of course, there can be conflicts between liberties, for example, between freedom of information and personal um, rights of data protection. But these are fought within the principle, within the framework of the first principle of justice. So he's basically endorsing liberal democracy. And he thinks that is a priority. He talks about the priority of liberty. So what is it prior to? Well, his second principle, secondary principle, has two parts. First of all, equal opportunities. He thinks we should have a fair start in life, in the race of life. So he talks about fair equality of opportunity, and he thinks that this must be secured by a just society. And there aren't many people nowadays <coughs> who wouldn't agree with that. But then he comes on to the second part of the second principle, which is what he calls famously the difference principle. That's interesting because Rawls is thought of as an egalitarian, but he actually builds difference or inequality right into the centre of his theory of justice as fairness. He thinks that it is fair for there to be certain differentials. What's the rationale here? Well, the rationale is quite simply that no one in the original position behind the veil of ignorance would be likely to choose an equality of misery. So, we know that the people in the original position are rational. They understand that economic growth is important. In other words, that the cake can be grown. The cake can become larger. So he thinks, and I think he's correct, that people would prefer a relatively small slice of a larger cake over a tiny slice of an equally sized cake. So basically the difference principle allows for incentives, it allows for some people, some groups in society to get ahead. So long as, he says, their doing so increases the well-being of society as a whole and particularly of the worst off. Now this is very, very interesting and it raises the issue of how much difference should be allowed. There are some people, I'll talk about criticisms later, but there are some people who think you can allow massive inequalities so long as a few little crumbs trickle down or drops trickle, trickle down, excuse me, to the worst off. That is not my interpretation of Rawls. I think he is limiting inequality within certain reasonable limits. It's difficult to specify exactly what these limits are, but basically he wants a safety net and he also wants a ceiling 
on capital accumulation, on wealth. One commentator, Posner, joked that Rawls basically envisages the difference between what a postdoc earns and what an endowed professor earns. So, you know, you might be talking about a one to four, one to six differential. But beyond that, Rawls, I think, would condemn inequality, and he certainly has no truck with the massive fortunes that we allow today. So the difference principle is mildly egalitarian. The issue, I think, for Rawls is that we need a practical theory of justice, so we must allow some differentials. And even Lenin, I've been reading Lenin recently, even he allowed certain differentials, as did Stalin, and even, you know, any even pure communist regime works out sooner or later that you cannot have an exact economic inequality. The point is to stop class society developing, social classes, where one class is alienated from another. But it doesn't mean you don't allow certain differentials based on hard work, risk-taking, and all the rest. So this is a mildly egalitarian, a practical utopia that Rawls is describing. And we've had this sort of society in the West and elsewhere uh, many times. For example, in Sweden, uh, through most of the 20th century, there was a limit on inequality. One thing I like about the difference principle is, it, is that it mentions the worst off. Inequalities are only justifiable if they benefit everybody, and particularly, he says, the worst off. And it's that point of view of the worst off that comes through very strongly in his theory of justice. And I think that is absolutely a correct perspective on which, from which to judge the justice of society. Gandhi, in a completely different context, said that you should judge a society from the point of view of its minorities. Put yourself in their shoes and see how society looks. Well, Rawls is saying, put yourself in the shoes of the worst off and see whether social arrangements seem fair to them. And if they do seem fair, then that situation can be regarded as a just society. So I love that, the view from the grassroots, the view, the perspective, excuse me, of the worst off. I remember when I was unemployed for a year and I, having come from a fairly privileged background, I saw society from the bottom of the social heap rather than from much further up. And it gave me a completely different perspective on people and politics. And, you know, I pity people who haven't had the opportunity to see society from the point of view of its less advantaged members. Somehow Rawls achieved that perspective in spite of himself being born into a very privileged Baltimore 
family. He somehow developed a sense of justice, a sense of fairness, uh, a sense that his privileges were not universal and that they weren't actually fair because other people, people born, as the Americans say, on the other side of the tracks, you've got to accommodate their perspective and see the world from their point of view. Does this make Rawls a socialist? Well, a recent book has come out entitled John Rawls' Reticent Socialist. I think he was a socialist in the sense that he wants to a liberal socialist. He wants liberty first. That can't be traded off. But he also wants equal opportunity and he wants limitations on outcomes, on the end of the race. We must start equally. We needn't end exactly equally. It might even be unjust to end equally. But we shouldn't end too unequally. So it's, it's mildly socialist. It puts the perspective, as I said, of the worst off, of the proletariat, whatever you want to call them. It puts that at the centre of thinking about social justice, and that has got to be considered socialist. But strictly speaking, some socialists would say that it's only socialism if you abolish markets and you have uh, arrangements that are collective in the economy. Now, Rawls doesn't say that. He allows a private economy. I think what he's pointing towards is a mixed economy with certain institutions in public hands, utilities and so on, and some industries in private hands. So it's really a mixed economy socialism that I think he is pointing towards. You might call him not so much a socialist as a social democrat. And I think his theory of justice is the most impressive exposition of social democracy that we've ever had. I remember at one time the Social Democratic Party in Britain broke away from the Labour Party and I joined the SDP at the time, as a lot of others did. And they had a John Rawls study group, of which I was a member. And we were trying to work out what is social justice. I mean, looking back now, the SDP was actually quite radical. They wanted what they call called an open, classless and more equal society. And they were prepared to get rid of private education, which not even the Labour Party today, not even the Labour Party under its former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, not even they, the left of the Labour Party, talk about private education or call it into question. So the whole of politics, of course, has moved to the right since the 80s. And, you know, in terms of... Um, fairness, we, we are no longer asking basic questions about private education. Now, Rawls, I think, would have supported private education, but uh, it just goes to show how difficult these questions are of social justice. I would still call into question the justice of private education myself. 
Anyway, uh, what is clear is that Rawls offers a rationale for a mildly socialist society, a caring, sharing society, as he puts it at one point, a society where everyone shares, or men, he wrote in quite sexist language, men share one another's fate. That is the kind of society that he thinks we would choose if we were placed in the original position behind a veil of ignorance. So it's a wonderful way of refining, uh, of organising and refining our feelings, our intuitions about justice and perhaps developing them in a leftward direction. What an achievement that book has um, given us. That's my short exposition of a very long book, a great book. Stuart Hampshire called it the most important contribution to moral philosophy since the Second World War, but it's more than that. It is actually a classic. It is a member of the canon of political thought up there with Marx, Hobbes, Locke, Aristotle and Plato and every philosopher you ask, would I'm sure acknowledge that. So I want you to go away and read Rawls's Theory of Justice. I actually recommend you buy the book. It's of course out in paperback. It's sold tens of thousands of copies. I don't think you would regret buying it. You might think it's an esoteric text. It isn't. It's a readable text. He was a wonderful writer and it's full of wonderful ideas, which I've tried to explain to you, the original position, the theory of the good, the veil of ignorance, the, the liberty principle, equal opportunities, and the famous difference principle. So go away and read some rules, find out about him, and find out about his contemporary role in political philosophy and discussions which are ongoing about distributive justice. And then next time, I'm going to come on to some standard criticisms of Rawls, and we'll see whether his theory of justice, justice as fairness, as he calls it, can survive scrutiny. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.